0: It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Good Saturday to you, everybody. I'm Gary Manson. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are joined at the board, uh, the board by our producer every Saturday, and that is the tall guy himself, Nathan Miller. Nathan, how are you doing today?
1: Good morning, Gary and Suzanne. And tall guy might have to temporarily replace that
2: today with uncle. Because I just got permission to announce to people that I am becoming an uncle in mid-January.
0: Nice. Well, that's wonderful. Uncle
1: Nathan.
2: (laughs)
0: Or maybe, I don't know, are you comfortable with Uncle Nate?
2: Yeah, we can say that. (laughs) Okay. There's (laughs) one thing that my uncle can only call me, but Uncle Nate works too. Wonderful. Is this
0: the first time? This will be my first time ever being an uncle. Oh, My brother and his wife are having their first child. Oh, well, blessings to them. We know everything will turn Very out good. beautifully. Very and good. thank you for bringing us in on a, on an upbeat note, something to rejoice. New with. life. New life. If we sound a bit sedate today, everybody will understand why. This is the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack on the United States of America in our homeland and we, we think about it, you know, you see these signs and you have people say, never forget. Well, no, we won't ever forget. We can't forget, wouldn't want to. And we look at this with uh, to reflect, to recollect, and also to find some hope. And, and preferably to heal. To heal. Yeah. And with healing comes, I think, a proper respect for rationality and trying to make sense of this human mm-hmm. adventure that we are on.
1: Well, we wanted to talk a little bit about 9 11 and other things with our esteemed guest here, Dr. Bernie Siegel. And Dr. Siegel is making his 12th visit with us today. It is an even dozen. Bernie S. Siegel, MD, is a well known proponent of integrative and holistic approaches to healing that heal not just the body, but also the mind and soul. His multi-million best-selling first book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, was published in 1986, and he has authored many books since then. He's a retired surgeon and a lover of animals. We read that in one of his books. Dr. Bernie has been at the forefront of spiritual and medical ethics issues of our day and has been named one of the top 20 spiritually influential living people by Watkins Mind, Body, Spirit Magazine in London. He comes to us from Connecticut, where he lives in a suburb of New Haven. And we'll be sure to give out his website again before the end of the hour, but I'll give you a preview. It's BernieSiegelMD.com. Number 12, Dr. Bernie, do you believe you've been with us 12 times now today?
2: If you say so, I believe it.
1: I have all the dates. I have the dates, I have it written down. We love talking to you and what better to have a healer on nine 11 to talk about healing practices and all kinds of good stuff and whatever else comes up in our world. And, um, first of all, where were you on nine 11, 20 years ago?
2: I don't remember exactly, but I had to be here in Connecticut. Um, and, Yes, what affected me was that there were people from Connecticut I knew, friends of ours, whose children, one, their daughter worked at the building and mm. you know, died there. So neighbors had lost family members too. Wow. Yeah.
1: How did Who told you about the towers? How did you find out?
2: Oh, I can't remember. I'm sure it must have been, you know, putting on television, radio, something. Um, and hearing about it.
0: I can tell you where I was. I was in Seattle. My mother had come for a visit. She had flown in from Las Vegas, where she lived for so many years. And on September 10, the evening of September 10, I I met with uh, what we called a sangha, some people from our church who formed a community within the community. And we did prayer work for each other. We had our personal aspirations and we would have some food together. And it was a very nice time. It was nice enough that I got home later than I anticipated. And you know what? I went to bed. My mom was already asleep. And the next morning, I woke up oblivious at this point to uh, anything except my immediate circumstances. And my mom was a little miffed because she came to visit me. And, you know, I, I suppose it was a bit rude of me to stay out so late and then return home. And she was already asleep. And so, you know, with a, a bit of tension in the air, I thought, well, I'll make a pot of coffee here and I will get on my computer and see what uh, what greets me, what email, what, what's the news. I'll check out the headlines. And when I saw there, uh, I think it was Yahoo News back in the day. I looked at the front page online and it said, Plane strikes Twin Towers in New York City. Bush suspects terrorism. And I'm looking at this and, you know, and my mom's a little annoyed with me. And I'm going, I said to my mom, I, you know, let me turn on the Today show. This doesn't make any sense. I mean, the Twin tower terrorism, what are we talking about? And I turned it on, and then, oh my God, the ghastliest sight in, that I've ever encountered in my life. And you know what, Doctor Bernie? At that moment, it was like in the blink of an eye. This tension over my, uh, you know, late arrival, yeah. staying out light, uh, late the night previous—all of that dissipated, and it was in a perfect example of how these things these human interactions between people and the little issues that arise they mean nothing when something so overwhelming occurs and then suddenly we are united by our common humanity and my mom and i and i knew that she had to get on a plane at some point fly back to las vegas There And by then, the the skies were clear and you could fly. But I just remember thinking, wow, you really have to keep things in perspective because you just never know what life in all its grandeur and sometimes all of its terrifying ugliness can present to us to cope with in the long run.
2: Well, there are two lessons to be learned. One is there are spiritual flat tires. (laughs) What is that? Think about this because this happened, I remember reading so many things. You get up in the morning, your wife says, you have to take the kids to school. Well, I have to get to work. I know, but I can't do it this morning. You're taking the kids to school. So he takes the kids to school and he's late to work and it saves his life because he worked in the towers. In the towers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And others who said, oh, I had to stop and drop off clothes at the cleaners, I had to this and you know there were half a dozen at least people i remember reading their stories that they're alive today because they had to do some annoying chore in the morning and that's why i call the spiritual flat tire when you're on the way to the airport and you get a flat and i've had that happen to me i don't get out screaming and frantic maybe god wants me to have a flat maybe i'll miss a plane that crashes how do i know what's going to happen And on the other hand, I've also had people pull up because a woman was driving me to the airport after a lecture, we get a flat. I said, well, let's change the tire. Oh, the jack is in my husband's car. So I know, well, you're not gonna get to the plane. And the guy pulls up, says, what's happening? I said, we don't have a jack. Oh, I'll take care of it. He changed the tire in five minutes. He was a young man you know and half the time it would have taken me and we made the plane so that's not a coincidence as far as i'm concerned that he was there at that moment um and again it's not the fault of the people in the building but things happen but jung said it a long time ago the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance so in some cases You know lives are saved because they did this other little thing in the morning um and when it's our time it's our time what i've learned is to compare life to a graduation because it always puzzles me why did they name a graduation a commencement you're finished why don't we say are you coming to my termination (laughs) (laughs) i'm done with school But life is a commencement and so is death. I can tell you, I've been there. I almost choked to death as a four year old. I had a near life, a past life experience when somebody over the phone said to me, why are you living this life? I went into a trance. So I've been there, I know the truth about it. And now we have an organization, IANS, about uh, Institute for the Advancement of Near Death, you know, experiences. So it's become common enough that people can now talk about it and share and uh, not be told, oh, you're crazy. And uh, life is, in a sense, a mystery. I mean, creation is a mystery. So enjoy the mystery, enjoy creation, and uh, see where it leads you. But the most important thing of all, I think, is for people to follow a bit of advice from my mother Ma, I have to make a decision. I'm not sure what I ought to do. Do what makes you happy. Ma, aren't you gonna help me decide? Do what makes you happy. And she never helped me. (laughs) I used to get annoyed with my mother for not helping me decide. But she taught me what a lot of AIDS patients, cancer patients, others I began to take care of with life-threatening illnesses you know, I let my heart make up my mind. So follow your heart. And uh, then you can end up in the right place at the right time.
1: In April of 2001, I moved from Sarasota, Florida, to Seattle, to be closer to some family there. But what I didn't know, Dr. Bernie, is that I was destined to move to the Seattle area to meet Gary Mance. I was barely across the state line, as I like to say, when I met the man. And as it turns out, we, were, uh, we knew who each other was during that summer, but it was right after 9-11 that we had our first date and actually got together And so this year we are celebrating 20 years together. And it was ironic to me when I received a call from my sister saying, come over immediately, there's something wrong. And I went to her house where I saw President George Bush in Sarasota, Florida, where I had moved from reading uh, children's stories at one of the elementary schools So I thought, well, that's really interesting. And then I spent two days with my sister in front of the TV, in disbelief, in shock, watching the events repeatedly uh, over and over and over again, and just trying to comprehend what was going on. But one of the things that Gary didn't mention was on that Monday night of September 10. He had decided to finally put it out there and ask me if I'd like to go for a cup of coffee with him sometime. And so we had not dated. We all only knew who each other was and used to say hi in passing. But then I didn't see my email from Monday night to Thursday night since I spent 48 hours or so away from my home. And in the meantime, he's thinking I'm not interested. It wasn't that I wasn't interested. I didn't see the email until 3 days later. And then that was the start of our blossoming relationship during 9/11. So while the while the world was in tragedy, my perspective was a little bit different in that I had a new relationship that was making me feel personally pretty happy even though the world was falling apart around me. And um that that's accepting everything in divine order, you know well, the the bigger plan.
2: Listen to to I have this wonderful little calendar, it's incredible, you know what it says on different days. Um, September eleventh, the soul can split the sky in two, and let the face of God shine through, from Edmund Edna, Edna St Vincent Malay, and just so you know why I. I say this in the sense of my puzzle. My wife and I, because I want to bring her up in a few minutes. Her birthday is nine, nine. Hmm. Um, And we were married on July 11th and listen to what this calendar says for that day. A part of you has grown in me. And so you see it's you and me together forever and never apart maybe in distance, but never in heart. Mm. And what a wonderful, every year I would, for, you know, forget that that was it and then turn to that page and boom. And my wife died about three and a half years ago. So this has been an emotional week in a sense, a birthday in 99 and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the tragedy today uh, that happened, but um she had a wonderful sense of humor, was a great teacher. And we had a great marriage. It's like you're talking about your relationship. I mean, my crazy sense of humor, what I like to do, it, you know, people would say to, I mean, they could see that my wife and I were in love. I mean, even when we were in a, a waiting room, I've had people, the two of us sitting there, come over and say, how long have you two been married? Because they saw something between the two of us and what i would love to say when she died we've been married 63 years since we were kids i would say we've had far, 40 wonderful years of married life the only trouble is they weren't consecutive and now, <laughs> look at me like ooh what a terrible man <laughs> my wife used to me and you know she would laugh but he, you know it's it's a way in a sense and may i say I mean, you could have a whole mystical hour if you want to invite me back. I mean, she died, but she hasn't left me. Um, and numbers are really significant. I mentioned we married on the 11th. I have found more dimes and pennies in all kinds of bizarre places and other messages from her, too, that if you want me to, I'll get into them. But, I mean, I know she's around. Let's put it that way, um, keeping an eye on me. Yeah, well, let me mention one other, okay? Because I mentioned the numbers of her birthday, nine nine. Nine months after she died, I had a new regular heart rhythm, which for me was classical. The person I love has died. What part of my body's gone crazy? I go You're to hurt. the yep. room. As I walk in the door, I hear a man's voice in the back yelling, put him in room nine. I thought, oh, my wife's here taking care of me already. We don't have a room for you in the hospital. You have to stay here tonight, next morning. We got your room, 819, so it adds up to 99. Then they put a wristband on me. What does it add up to? It has an 8, which is a symbol for a new beginning, 1-8. Then it has 996633s, at least three of each of those. So everything in the thing adds up to nines. Mm. And doctors and nurses got tired of, uh, you know, because every time I'd go back for a visit, you get another band put on and mm-hmm. they said, we know, everything adds up to nines. They didn't want <laughs> me to keep telling them, you know, <laughs> look at those numbers. But I mean, how do you account for all those things? And as I say, it's something mystical as far as I'm concerned. And even sometimes in the morning, I get a message like, it's time to get up. I look at the clock, it's 9.09. Um, it, it you know, so as I say, I know she's hanging around, keeping track of me, and uh, that we're together forever. And she was in a past life of mine, because you talk about how you two made, um, we met in a past life. It was a, go- a gory situation. Well, I won't tell you all the details, but the part of why I became a surgeon in this life was I killed with a sword in a past life. I was a knight in Ireland. And, and I didn't make up, believe me, any of this. It, it came to me, it was such a tragic experience. I was crying, uh, but I understood. But with my wife and I, we were working as counselors in a camp. Um, she was gonna be a school teacher and they made her the head of the first grade girls. I was in college, you know, getting ready for medicine, all kinds of science courses. And, uh, I was the low guy on the boys counselor group but we were watching the kids one day at the same time at the pool and i said to her you know it's nice they keep the pool open at night so you can come over and take a swim on a hot night and she looked at me and said are you asking me for a date and i wasn't because she's so pretty i thought there's no point in asking she's never going to go out with you but as soon as she said, are you asking? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was asking you. And she said, all right, I'll come. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and there was the coincidence that led to our marriage, really.
1: How did uh, that past life come to you? Did you work with somebody? Was it a,
2: oh, a no, audio?
1: How, how, did right. you, how did you find that?
2: The shock. I was uh, about 50 at the time. Mm-hmm friend of mine called me and I said I have an interview in a few minutes I don't have time to talk so it's got to be quick and she said why are you living this life because she knew how busy I was that's what she said why are you living this life over the phone and I went into a trance and I said oh my god she said did I upset you I said no it's what I'm seeing myself with a sword you know and I realized you know the effect it had on this life because I say my wife was a part of it I'm not going to get into the gory details but I think we were meant to be together to heal a lot of things from the past but why we were always rescuing uh, animals and everything else it's like making up for all the damage I did in the past um, so our house was a zoo you know mm-hmm. We're always rescuing everything and why I became a physician. And yeah, I think the past affects us. And the more we know about our lives, the more we get to know ourselves and why we choose to do the things we do.
0: Why we choose to do the things we do. I've always been curious, Dr. Bernie, about the trajectory of your career and whom you have become. Since that moment, if in fact it was a moment rather than something more gradual and thereby hangs the question, do you recall a time, Bernie, when one of your doctor colleagues responded to something that you said, something metaphysical, something that went beyond the Western medical model, perhaps saying something to you like, oh, come, come now, Bernie, we're modern men of medicine, and yet you bring up this superstitious nonsense. Where is your head at? Get it back in the game, man. Was there some kind of moment like you where you had to say, no, this is who I am now, and here's why?
2: Yeah, I became a storyteller because of that experience. See, when you spoke to doctors in a group, and you you could even talk about a study that somebody did And they'd say, that's poorly controlled study. That was a lousy journal. Um, Because they don't want to believe it. Um, If I told a story, they didn't get angry. They could say that was just a story. You know, it wasn't statistically valid. But at least it was true. They weren't denying that. And then I found if they ran into a story in their life or practice, then they'd meet me and say, hey, I got a story for you. And then the walls would break down. But to give you an example of the problem, when I began to share my experiences with medical journals, they were never published. Why not? It's interesting, but it isn't appropriate for our journal. It didn't make sense to me, but that was their intellect, see? I sent it to psychiatry journals thinking, all right, they'll publish it. No, they send it back with this comment. It's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know all this. So what medicine does is really separate your head and your body. They, your feelings, your emotions, what do they have to do with your body? So we're, well, here's Jung's quote again, the diagnosis helps the doctor, but it doesn't help the patient. For there, the key thing is the story. For it alone shows human background and human suffering and only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate and my life has been so mystical how the hell can i not believe all right no. i mean i have an angel and i mean that literally okay i believe you he saved my life when i was four years old choking on a toy that i had taken apart because there were men working in our house. And putting nails in their mouth carpenters so i took my toy telephone apart and put the pieces in my mouth and aspirated them was choking to death most painful thing i've ever experienced in my life um and i left my body and as a four-year-old boy was that fun i mean it wow i'm out of my body i'm not in pain anymore i was mad when i didn't die uh, <laughs> i mean i'm laughing but it sounds crazy But When I didn't die, and I'll tell you why in a minute, I yelled, who did that? Because I had said, hey, I like this. I know my parents will be upset, but being dead is really interesting. Um, And what I realized years later, my angel did a Heimlich maneuver on me because I watched the body on the bed be lifted up around the waist. And I thought, oh, it's having a seizure. And that's why the pieces came out. But I realize now it was my angel picking me up and giving me a squeeze and the pieces popped out. And uh, the other thing that, the reason I say I know I have that angel, I've had many accidents where I could have been disabled or killed, Uh, cars going through red lights and totaling my car, falling off the roof when a ladder broke, all this stuff. And, and I always walked away with no problems, and it wasn't my time. But once I was giving a lecture, like I'm talking to you, and I realized, where's it coming from? I'm not following my outline. Uh, I'm just standing here talking for hours. After the lecture was done, a woman came up and said, that was better than usual, I've heard you before. I said, I agree with you. The next person said, standing in front of you for the entire lecture was this man, so I drew his picture for you. And it was George. Ah. Then, I don't know, are you familiar with the name, Olga mm-hmm. Worrell. She was a mystic and healer. She and her husband, uh, Ambrose, wrote books about their experience, incredible psychic people. Mm-hmm. I spoke at a Christian funeral. And Olga uh, was there too, because we both knew the man who died. She came up to me after, as everybody was leaving, to go, you know, to the burial site. And she said, are you Jewish? I said, what are you asking me that for? There's a rabbi standing next to you. And that mm-hmm. was George. And that, that's when I understood everything he was wearing uh, and why he was dressed that way. But, you know, mm-hmm. for her to describe him in that kind of detail is just unbelievable. and. So I rely on George uh, to take care of me and help me.
1: Dr. Bernie, we're going to take our one and only break of this hour. And I like the way this conversation is going. We also have a very metaphysical listenership that is right with you here. We're going to talk more about this and more things after this break. So give us a couple of minutes. And thank you for listening to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back.
0: On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Mickey Jacobs, a psychic medium and energy healer who practices a multifaceted approach to spirituality, a la the great Edgar Cayce. She'll be taking calls for spirit messages in the second half of the show.
1: On Saturday, Daniel Bruce Levin is featured in an Encore presentation from earlier this year. It's worth repeating. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150.
0: Multicultural, multidimensional, even. Alternative Talk 1150.
1: Welcome back to Manson Mitchell, my dear best buddy in the whole world. Gary Mance, Virgo, is having a birthday tomorrow on 912. Oh,
0: there we go <laughs> there uh, uh, with this high budget operation. That was our birthday party for me. Thank you so much. And, and it was calorie free. So this right. is fine. Sugar free. Right. But uh, and the sweetness <laughs> provided by my sweetness, Suzanne Mitchell. Thank you for sneaking that in. Yes. Uh, September 12th birthday. And we're talking with Dr. Bernie Siegel. A joy to have him with us as always for the 12th time today. Bernie, I just think I will mention this to you by way of sharing with our audience that I, is it a habit or is it simply a happenstance? Either way, there have been people I have met who were born on September 11, And when we talk about birthdays there, and I say that a lot, you know, I'm, my birthday is September 12th. And I feel like there I'm grateful as a happenstance, just as it so happens that I don't, I don't recall September 11 on September 12. I'm just doing birthday things, but I feel bad for those who were born on September 11. In the same way that I used to way back in my youth, I used to be curious about people whose birthdays were. December December seventh, Pearl Harbor baby. I've had people be referred to as a Pearl Harbor baby. Yikes. You know, and I I say to people, you know, I I'm sorry that your birthday lands on a day that now has this permanent historical tragic significance. And there was a lady from New York, Bernie. She had to be in her 80s at that time. And I said that to her. I mean, I'm sorry that your birthday is September 11th. Thank God you're still with us. But for it to be on that day, it's it's just one of those tragic coincidences. And I remember her saying in her frail voice, I know, but what are you gonna do? <laughs> and I said, Well, you've got the right attitude. And a lot of times in life, it seems, you face a circumstance or a set of circumstances, and that's the best response that any of us come up with. What are you gonna do? It speaks to me about the the, the um Stoic gene, I think it's part of our DNA as humans to have this capacity to take things in, to make as much sense of them as we can, and to move on. That's one of the gifts of having the human brain.
2: But it isn't, it isn't what you said is a better answer to that. Say my mother, again, when I would say, I had a horrible situation today, Ma, she would say. God is redirecting you, something good will come of this. Ah, Norman Vincent Peale's mother, because I shared that with him one day, we were talking, he said, yeah, my mother, the same thing. Norman, if God slams one door further down the corridor, another will be open. And my father's father died of tuberculosis with no money, leaving a wife and six children. And one day I couldn't believe it. My father was being interviewed and he said, one of the best things that happened to me was my father dying when I was 12 years old. That night I said to him, what the hell are you talking about? I heard the hell you went through with your family. He said, yeah, but it taught me what was important about life. Mm -hmm. He was always helping other people. And one of his, really significant statements which I heard uh, later in my life from a psychiatrist who said one of the things I know about people who survive is when they're asked to do a favor for a friend or family member they don't want to do they say no and I can tell you it's rare for a nurse to ever answer no when she's asked to do something by friends or family I'm always teaching them that they got to take care of themselves. But I said to my father one day, you know, i really feeling guilty asking you for money because I got married when I finished college. I have no money, no job. I'm going to medical school and married. You know, I needed money to survive, to pay rent. And he said, if I don't want to do it, I'll say no. It was a beautiful, powerful statement. You know, when I was still a young man. So he freed me. And he was doing what he wanted to do to help me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing. What a blessing. You know, it's interesting. My, my, we were talking. Say this. My mother yeah. came to our first apartment one day. And she said, why are you living in this place? It's awful. I said, Ma, Dad is paying the rent. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that
2: way I didn't feel guilty. You know, I didn't have this elaborate apartment on the top floor of some fancy building you know so we were on the second floor <laughs> walk mm-hmm. up and etc cetera, etc cetera. but that way i didn't feel guilty that he was paying the rent right
1: we were talking before the break about uh, the story of our lives mm-hmm. and gary and i had a conversation within the last week maybe last week it, it was where i painted two completely Opposite scenarios about what my grammar school life was like. And in one scenario, everything I said was true and everything I said was negative. And then in the second scenario, everything I said was true and everything was positive. And so each of us has a story to tell. What is the story of our lives? But where do we put the emphasis? What do we conjure up? Is it always going to be the bad stuff that happened to us? Is it going to be the good stuff that happened to us? Is it the awards and the accolades and, and the leadership and the good stuff? Or is it going to be the people that didn't like you? And, you know, when you did badly and when you got injured, I mean, yeah, I think when you look at a, a big life like that, it's like, what do you
2: choose to pick out and talk it all about? It depends on your parents. Why do you say that? Harvard students were asked, did your parents love you? Those who said no, 98% had suffered a major illness by middle age. Those who said yes, 24% had. If you don't grow up with love, you're a mess. Mm. That's the answer. Wow. Now, I'm not saying they have to like what you're doing, but they love you.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: So yeah, there's discipline, they're teaching you. Yeah, I mean, I remember our kids saying to me, you're getting a divorce. I said, what kind of crazy question is that? You yell a lot. We have five kids. Uh, I said, I don't like what you're all doing. So I raised my voice so you hear me, but I love you and I love your mother. You know, So I'm not getting a divorce. I just want you guys to behave yourselves. And I acted in a way that gave them freedom. So, you always had a sense of humor. And uh, I mean, let me tell you, just so you understand, I'm known at many restaurants. Why? Because if I call a Chinese restaurant and I say, I want to order a pizza, please. They say, Oh, hi, Dr. Siegel. How are you? How do they know it's <laughs> I'm the only person who does that. And at the pizza place, I order Chinese food. And one night they even had some for me. I came in, I said, Is my Chinese food order ready? And they said, "Of course," and they put the containers up on the counter, and the whole restaurant busted out laughing. Oh gosh! They even made a fake bill for me once. Uh, I mean, I didn't ask for it. You know, we were eating. We had pizza. The waitress comes over, hands me the check, one hundred and twenty-three dollars and fifty-eight cents. I said, "What the hell is this? This is a few of us eating a pizza." I go over to the you know, cashier. I said, the arithmetic's right, but how did you put this together? And the fellow, Pat is his name, who's running the restaurant. It's named Ernie's. I tried to get them to change it to Bernie's, but they refused. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I said, Pat, what is this? He busted out laughing. I said, what's going on? He said, your daughter and I put a fake bill together to get even with you for all the craziness you perform and drive us nuts. And then the whole restaurant apparently knew what they were doing and laughed. And I saved the bill, you know, but it frees your kids up. And, And these are true, I don't make this up. One of our sons is a lawyer. He came home and said, dad, thanks. For what? I did something a little nutsy in the office today. And the only thing I heard people say was, Well, you know who his father is? He didn't get punished because he's got a father who isn't normal. So it must be affecting his genes. And the kids invariably came home from school with that for me. Hey, dad, thanks. What did I do? I was having fun doing crazy things at school today. And the teacher said, you know who his father is? It's like pointless to discipline him or talk to him about it. And so they got away with things because of their crazy father. And um, and that's why people know me. And I say, do this when you go out. Go in the post office. They say, how are you today? I'm depressed. I'm out of my antidepressant. My doctor's on vacation. I can't refill my prescription. What happens? You'd be amazed how many people... In the line behind you, offer you an antidepressant. <laughs> that really, I mean, that shook me up. How many people in this yeah. world are depressed? Today? Yeah. Um, but the other day, everything came apart because I said that at the post office. And I really do this, I don't make it up. And I got poked in the back. And I turned around, handed a card. I'm a psychiatrist, this woman said. I specialize in depression. Maybe I can help you. And I said, Oh God, I'm a doctor. I was kidding. I'm sorry. You know. <laughs> and then the whole, you know, post office busted out laughing. But now when I go in, the people working there say, What routine are you putting on today to make us laugh? You know, what are you going to do today to make us laugh? So my craziness makes them smile but you know, they know I'm not normal. And it's to have a sense of humor, even when I pay a toll, I mean, just so you know my craziness, you pull up to a toll station and I say, how may I help you? You know, they look at you like, what are you talking about? But this one woman, see, she was a kid too. She said, get out of your car, collect the tolls and I'll go home and have a nice day. <laughs> we're both laughing you know in two minutes we're both feeling better um yeah. and that's why it keep the child in you alive that's the best way of saying it because what i also saw when people were told they had a few months to live it's part of why i wrote my books and i i found that i would meet people i thought were dead years later usually when i was speaking i'd see them in the audience When i've done i'd say why didn't you come back to the office? Why didn't you? All the doctors are telling me when I'm gonna be dead, but I would never talk to them like that. But why didn't you come back? Let me know if you're okay. Oh, you know, well, what the doctor said, I am never gonna to bother to come back. How come you didn't die? They always had a story, They Getting a dog, buying a house on the ocean in Florida, um, Oh, moving to Colorado to die in the mountains. I closed my law office because I never wanted to be a lawyer. My parents forced me to be a lawyer because they couldn't be proud of a violinist. Now I have a job playing the violin in an orchestra. Everybody had a story. And I have to tell you, when I called uh, Colorado to ask why I wasn't invited to the funeral a year later, because he was supposed to live for two or three months, he answered the phone. And he said, oh, it's so beautiful here, I forgot to die. You know, <laughs> called and I called to ask why I wasn't invited to the funeral. And <laughs> um, you got an answer. I, think you're so, first, I learned that there was you know, a reason that people didn't die. Yeah, I and mean, here's the key. Solzhenitsyn's book, Cancer Ward. See, doctors would call it a spontaneous remission. Right. You know, if you ask the patient, Why didn't you die when you were supposed to? They don't say, I don't know, something miracle, miraculous happened. I mean, for some, they said, I left my troubles to God. That's a quote from a lady whose cancer in the pancreas disappeared. And others were also saying the same type of thing. And this is what Solzhenitsyn said. One of the men said, hey, I found this book in the library, in the hospital. It says here, there are cases of self Induced healing, not recovery through treatment, but actual healing. See, and it was as though self induced healing fluttered out of the great open book like a rainbow colored butterfly, and they all held up their foreheads and cheeks for its healing touches as it flew past. Boom. When I read that, I thought, and Solzhenitsyn has had cancer, I knew he knew what I was talking about. Self induced. Why does it happen? the rainbow-colored butterfly. You bust out of your cocoon, spread your wings, and the rainbow is your life in harmony and order because every color has meaning. Because I do a lot of work with drawings, and I can tell you, every color has meaning. But when your life is in harmony, you spread your wings, boom. Your body heals because it knows you like life. I mean, on a simple level, What day of the week do we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses? Monday. Monday,
1: right. Nobody wants to go to work.
2: Yeah. You know, that's interesting that you
0: mentioned that, Dr. Bernie, because there was a phenomenon. I don't know if it continues there, but going back maybe 30 years, I can recall hearing on the news, the story of a phenomenon, a deadly phenomenon in Japan called Haroshi. death by overwork they would go people would go to work and they were always working to get ahead when the japanese economy was red hot leading the world there and people would go into work to find a colleague dead at their desk on monday morning and it was referred to as hiroshi you work yourself to death and they would be dead on a monday morning at the start of another work week
2: right yeah your body is doing you a favor you don't like living we'll get you out of here you'll be perfect again. Hmm. Yeah, I forgot where the words came from, but when you die, you become dreamless, unalive and perfect. That was some, yeah, I think it may have been, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, He wrote a lot of books, uh, the human comedy. um, I have this quote on our headstone. Um, How can I forget his name?
0: Well, that's uh, okay you know but those words count for a lot yeah they also speak to something and during the break I had mentioned to you casually that when we came back I wanted to ask you this because I've never inquired of a doctor there on the radio or in my own life here uh, just as a as a uh, citizen a patient there is there a point in your medical training where you either take a class or it's part of a seminar with all of that high level education you're getting. Is there some training relative to how you go to break the news to loved ones about the passing of their loved one? Or is it something that more or less becomes a kind of apprenticeship where you learn as you go by seeing how other doctors do it? No, it's
2: a sick thing. Nobody teaches you. Are we, you serious? Yeah, I'm, I'm serious. Oh, but my goodness. We had what well, a conference that was called Morbidity and Mortality Conference, where you discuss the people who died that month and cases that went wrong so that you'd learn from it, say, that if you made a mistake. Because that's why the case was brought up, say, was it, you know, that his death and natural cause was an error in care, so forth. But what was the way of re- saying we're having that conference? Oh, we're having black book conference on Friday. Black book. What does the color black represent? Despair, depression. And when I used to raise my hand to, to bring up points about this, to say, can I talk about my patient? Can I talk about my feelings? And the chief of surgery would say, Siegel, sit down. Because they knew I was being a pest, trying to change things, see? And we are not taught to deal with that. I walked into a patient's room. This was a friend of mine I was visiting at the hospital. Bed's empty. I went to the desk. I said, what happened to Alan? He brady Now, what the hell does that mean? What is the name of the morgue at Yale? The building it's in? The Brady building. So he didn't die, he braided. That's mm. how sick it is. And when do most people die in the hospital? At night, when you're not there to stop them, they And feel like a failure. And the most tragic thing of all that I learned is, draw yourself working as a doctor got 90 students sitting there in medical school. Draw yourself working as a doctor. 89 students drew, I'm sitting behind a desk with a diploma on the wall. No other human being in the picture. One drew a picture of himself standing in front of a lady in a wheelchair, handing her a tissue. He's the only one who's becoming a doctor For healthy reasons. That's why I had pain. I wanted to take care of people. And nobody taught me how to take care of people. It made you feel like you're a failure. You can't save lives. You can't this. You can't that. But I learned by seeking help for myself. I drew a picture for Elizabeth Kugler-Ross. What was her first question of me? I drew an outdoor scene. Bernie, what are you covering up? I said, what are you talking about? You used a white crayon on a white piece of paper to make snow on a mountain. It's already white. You added a layer. What are you covering up? All my feelings. Why is 11 important? Why do you ask that? You drew 11 trees in the picture. I mean, every question she had made sense. So I went back to the hospital with a box of crayons and I got people to do drawings and reveal what was within them, including whether the treat. I mean, some would draw the hell, get, I mean, the devil giving me poison as chemotherapy and somebody else draws it as coming from God. Guess who has no side effects? Yeah, and I mean that literally. My patients became known as Siegel's crazy patients. <laughs> First, I was called crazy, talking to people under anesthesia, giving them positive messages, playing music in the operating room, doing all kinds of things. That Everybody said, what difference does that make? They're anesthetized. Yeah, but they'd wake up and talk about what I said to them during the operation. Yes. Yeah, and that blew the minds of the anesthesiologists. Yeah. Yeah, I even once... Patient dies, his heart stops. Anesthesiologist said, I can't get it going. I'm calling for stretcher, take him to the morgue. What does Siegel do? I yelled out loud in the operating room. Johnny, it's not your time yet. Come on back. His heart started beating again. And he (laughs) I love that. And the comment I never forget is the anesthesiologist looking at me and saying, I like working with you you know i'm sure (laughs) oh my goodness they all thought i was a nutcase but then they began to realize what his patients are doing well so siegel's crazy patients became a compliment i mean and, and these are literally true stories that i get a phone call from the radiation therapist bernie i thought the machine was broken then i saw your name in the chart i realized it's one of your crazy patients i said how come you have no reaction to radiation you know, no side effects. She said, I get out of the way and let it go to my tumor.
1: Mm. Yeah.
2: The anesthesiologist made a coloring book for children because he saw all the work I was doing with coloring, you know. And one boy drew the anesthesiologist in red, even though on that page there's a paragraph that says you meet someone called an anesthesiologist who's dressed in green pajamas, an outfit that looks like green pajamas. Why is a kid drawing him red then? And the anesthesiologist said to me, I said, I'm worried about this because at the last page he's in purple, a spiritual color, I'm canceling his operation. He knows something. And the anesthesiologist said to me, Bernie, his mother has muscular dystrophy. He could have an adverse reaction to muscle relaxants and be a fatal event so i said turn to the last page and it wasn't purple it was red and black meaning i'm hurting and i'm not happy fine we went ahead with surgery so i mean that changed everybody and even kids and adults who drew the future they drew their the operating room they've never been in so my goodness you
0: you have so many stories we have to go dr bernie i understand we're we're so gonna,
1: We're gonna have you. number 13 with you yeah. in, in the near future. And okay. and thank, thank you, you, sir,
0: for joining us once again today. We will do this again. Thanks for
2: listening.
1: All right.
0: Coming up next.
1: Jupiter rising. Stay tuned.
0: 20 years later, we do not forget, we remember. Have a good weekend, everyone.